And I realized like everything that we do in life, we create the words that people use around us. So if you want to be seen as the most powerful woman in the room, you have to believe it and you have to use that word to describe yourself. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Constant Contact. Today, I'm interviewing Lydia Finette. Lydia is an inspiration in the world of charity and fundraising. Her career began at the world-renowned Christie's Auction House, where she carved a niche as one of the few young female charity auctioneers in the sector. After 24 fulfilling years, Lydia embarked on her own entrepreneurial journey by founding the Lydia Finette Agency, dedicated to charity auctioneering. Her books, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You and Claim Your Confidence, have echoed her learnings and insights, creating ripples across readers globally. She's driven by the core belief in the power of confidence and the need for authenticity in being successful, either on stage or in life. Lydia commands the stage with unyielding confidence, seeking to shatter fundraising norms and challenge the scarcity mindset as she aims to diversify auctioneers and create an inclusive atmosphere in the world of fundraising. I have loved reading her books and there is so much to learn in this episode, so I can't wait to dive in. Let's go meet Lydia. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Lydia Finette. Lydia, welcome to What the Fundraising. I'm so excited to be here. There's nothing I love talking more about than fundraising, so I'm delighted to be on this show. It feels so lucky to have you here after I just finished reading your book, and I know we have some mutual friends in common as well. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you, your history, and what brings you to our conversation today? Absolutely. So my name is Lydia Finette. As we discussed at the beginning, I'm the CEO and founder of the Lydia Finette Agency, which is a boutique charity auctioneering agency that I started about three months ago. But the story begins a lot longer before three months. And I have been a charity auctioneer for over two decades. I worked for Christie's Auction House for almost 24 years. And that was really where my story started and frankly continued for a really long time. But the one passion that I've always had in every offshoot of my career has really come from charity auctioneering. So in 2019, I wrote my first book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You based on things that I learned on stage as a charity auctioneer about selling as a woman and how to fundraise in a way that felt authentic to you. And then I followed it up with a second book that came out just in March of this year called Claim Your Confidence, because I kept getting the same question about confidence when people were talking to me about the first book. So I started a podcast also called Claim Your Confidence, just because if you want something done, give it to a busy person. So that was the beginning of the year. And then I launched the agency a couple of months after that. So all hands on deck. I feel like I'm firing on all cylinders. And it really all comes down to raising money for nonprofits in my life. I love hearing that. And that's so interesting about the confidence piece too. I'm curious, when you launched your first book, how did people relate to the word powerful? I'm curious about just that word in general, both in terms of how women relate to it, but also how folks in the nonprofit sector relate to it. It's a random question to start with, but I've always wondered. Yeah, it's so funny that you asked that, Mallory, because the most powerful woman in the room is you came out in 2019. 
And I remember when I told the New York Times that I was writing a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, even though I'd only written a chapter of it, they were basically doing a day in the life piece. And I kind of felt like if I was ever going to make myself do it, telling the New York Times that I was doing it was going to be the way. And so I did and it worked. But the interesting thing was, I remember the day after I walked into work and no one at work knew that I had this dream of writing a book. And I ran into who was then the chairman of the company who I'd worked with for over, at that point, 15, 16 years. And he walked by me and he kind of laughingly said, the most powerful woman in the world. And I, I remember honestly, just wanting to die. Like, who was I to use this word powerful? And who was I to feel like I could use that word as the title of a book? But what I realized over the course of the year as I wrote it, and then ultimately as I started to promote it, was I became that person because I took ownership of that word. And so when I used to tell people at the very beginning, they'd be like, what's the name of your book? And I would say, it's the most powerful, like really try to swallow it. And I do remember <laughs> some people saying, Whew, that is quite a title. But then as I got more comfortable with it and I took ownership of that word and the book came out and I was in charge of promoting it, I took ownership of the word power and then people saw me as powerful. And that was a really interesting shift. And it was something that I, I don't know that I really saw it until a couple of months afterwards when I remember a friend of mine saying something like, you know, I went to a conference and they had a power women's summit and you were not there as if to say I was the only person who could speak on the authority of power. And I realized like everything that we do in life, we create the words that people use around us. So if you wanna be seen as the most powerful woman in the room, you have to believe it and you have to use that word to describe yourself. And so I find a lot of feedback I get about the book is someone says to me, I saw the book across the room at Target and I saw the word powerful and I thought that's who I am or that's who I want to be. And that ended up being a main driver of the people who read that book. Wow. You know, I had a woman in college that I interned for as a part of an applied studies program who was a political leader in the state. And I remember her saying to me at one point, as soon as you stop being afraid of the word power or of power, you're going to really realize what you're capable of. And it's like one of the few things I remember hearing in my early 20s, and I don't know what I had done to earn that feedback, but it really stuck with me. And I think it's so interesting because, yeah, it's a relationship to build with that word, with that identity. And I love hearing about your evolution with that book. And so can you talk about the relationship between owning our power and our presence in a room and confidence and what confidence really means and looks like to you? Absolutely. Confidence and power go hand in hand. I truly believe you feel confident and then you can step into your power in many ways. But I know a lot of people are scared of both of those words, not really because power is something that they don't want, but that they just aren't sure how they'll be perceived if they are perceived as powerful. And I think the biggest issue in my opinion about confidence is that we seek it from other places. And as a result of that, we oftentimes don't try things that we think could put us in a bad light or are going to make us fail. Or others, people could say like, oh God, look at her, look what she just did and speak ill of us when that isn't what we want. 
And so what I often say about confidence is the easiest way to become more confident is to start doing things that you don't think you can do. And in some cases, you'll prove yourself right, and then you'll survive and you'll realize you can try it again, or you'll prove yourself wrong and you'll realize how strong you are. And the more you do that, the more you exercise that, the more confident you'll become in yourself until, as your boss said to you, it's the same thing with confidence and power. At some point, if you start believing it, then everybody around you will look at you and think, that person has it. They have that confidence. They have that power. And it's an amazing feeling to know that other people think that about you and understand that you're not looking for their acceptance to own those words. Yeah. Wow. I love that. And it, it's interesting the like external validation and relationship to confidence piece, because it also is what then can make it be fleeting or leave us or we can lose it. I read something recently about yes. how once you sort of know your worth or stand in your power, like it can't be taken away from you. And I have learned that over the course of my life too, that that true like inner confidence that doesn't go away with a mistake or with a moment of embarrassment even. It's like it lives deeper than that and allows you to rebound from those things instead of continually sort of looking for those external moments that validate, do you deserve to be a confident person? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I tell a story in the first chapter of my second book, In Claim Your Confidence, about you know, my book tour for my first book, it literally leaves off where my first book ends. And I'm on book tour in San Francisco and I've launched the book in New York and I was able to really slam dunk it in New York. I've lived in New York for two decades. I was on the Today Show, the place that I'd worked for two decades through the launch party for 90 amazing women. I mean, it was like everything I had ever wanted in my entire life in two weeks. And I headed out to San Francisco waiting for the same thing to happen. And I went to my first book event and I, I won't spoil the story as the lead up goes, but at the end of the day, I walked into a room that I thought was gonna be packed as it had been in New York. And there was one person sitting in the front of 50 chairs, one person. And I led with that story in the book because I say to the reader, people think that you're confident because you're standing at the top of the mountain. You're confident because you did the things and those things happened to you and you got past them and you realize that if it doesn't kill you, it really does make you stronger. And so I always lead with that story because I believe that we as people who are successful in the course of our life should tell people that success is not forever and success does not continue. It's something that you're constantly striving to reinvent yourself with. And in doing so, you will fall flat on your face many times. And that's okay. That's part of the equation. In fact, it's kind of fun. And you can open a book with a story about it and people love it. That's the other great thing. You can always turn it into copy, as Nora Ephron said. Oh my gosh, I love that. Okay, I want to transition from how we're talking about that individual confidence to like our fundraising confidence because I've done a lot of different types of fundraising in my career in this sector. I have never done auctioneer work or even cattle pledge work, even when I was in small organizations where we weren't externally hired. And I've always been just in awe of auctioneers and folks who lead paddle pledges at these events and the confidence they exude, the energy, kind of the pulse they create in the room. So talk to me a little bit about how your journey into becoming an auctioneer has built your identity, built part of your orientation to your own confidence and the role you see that playing in fundraising. You know, when it comes to fundraising, and you will have to at some point stop me because I'll talk about this for two hours straight. <laughs> I don't think that there is anything more important in a fundraising gala than that moment when you put an auctioneer on stage. 
And people often ask me what makes a successful charity auctioneer. And I always say it's an auctioneer who can get on stage and they're not afraid of the crowd. They're not afraid of the room. They're not afraid if they're going to talk. They walk out there believing that they are going to run that stage for the next 10 minutes to do the paddle raise or 30 minutes to do the live auction. And they use every tip and trick and everything that they can do to keep the crowd with them on this journey to raise money for the nonprofit. And so I think the journey to that for me was long. I mean, I've been an auctioneer for over two decades. I started when I was 24. I tried out at Christie's Auction House, and I was one of the only women at that time taking charity auctions. And I was by far the youngest one out there. But that was also a huge benefit to me because a lot of the people who were taking auctions were much older and they had families. So they had people that they needed to go home to at night. And I was 24 living in New York City and I didn't need to go home to anyone. So I left work, threw on a cocktail dress as I walked out of the back door of Christie's and went straight to stage every single night. And I got beaten up on stage. I mean, people in New York City do not care that there is an auction taking place. They are not interested in listening and they do not want to listen. And so when you deal with that night after night, it really erodes your confidence. I mean, there were very many nights when I would just cry and cry and cry after I got off stage and think to myself, like, I'm never doing this again. And I think a lot of people have that happen a couple of times when they start auctioneering and they never go back. And I'm sure you've been in rooms where you've seen that happen, where it's like you think it's going to all go well and the person gets up and people just talk the whole time and they can't get control of the crowd. But over many, many years, what I really developed was an authentic voice, something that was true to me. I think it's a little bit of comedy. It's a little bit of improv. It's a little bit of reading the room and motivating them through jokes and through flattery and through the things that I know make it work. And as a result of that, even during the bad ones, I'll often say in this day and age, I still have five or six a week. And so I might say over the course of a week, out of five auctions, like I can think of like two in my life that I would call tens, just like absolute slam dunks, everything I ever wanted, extra bonus, all of those things. And then over the course of a week, I'll be like, okay, that was a five. Like I didn't feel great about the way that the crowd was. What could I have done differently? But that was a seven and that was an eight. And so it's an objective way of looking at my performance that night in relation to the crowd. And that for me has helped maintain my confidence because I know if I go out there and it's great, Whereas I know if I go out there and I did my best, but the crowd wasn't where I needed them to be. But I always feel like the confidence piece comes from knowing that you've tried your best. You've gotten out there and you've given it your all. There's nothing else you could have done, no trick left in the book. And so you have to be content with that as well. And I don't look externally for people to tell me if the auction went well. I know. And that I think has really changed the way that I view it. You know, I say in the book, I say in Claim Your Confidence that when I first started taking auctions, I would get off stage and there was always someone who would grab my arm and be like, oof, that was a tough crowd. And that would send me into a spiral of self-doubt for weeks. I'd be like, oh my God. Now, you know, if someone says that to me, I say, yeah, it's a charity auction. There's no other type of crowd. They're all tough crowds. A thousand people who don't want you on stage. What other kind of crowd is there, right? And so I think by owning that piece, by telling them, like acknowledging that that is part of the job, they're all like, oh she got it. You know, she wasn't up there thinking that was great when it wasn't, or she wasn't up there thinking that no one was talking when they were like, I see exactly what you see, but I choose to do my best and then get off that stage. Wow. I mean, you know, it's so interesting because I think about all the conditions we try to control for our confidence or all of the conditions we try to control for public speaking, for example, right? And then auctioneering is like the gauntlet of like, we will give you none of those conditions. 
yeah. <laughs> one piece of paper with two sentences and people are like, go get $10 million. And I'm like, yep, it's a Tuesday night. Here we go. <laughs> What what you just said, and I think it goes back to that confidence piece, what I've learned from being on stage is that nothing ever goes right when I'm on stage. There's always something that I'm not going to see. And instead of being worried about it, I embrace it and make it part of the show. Like I've got on stage and the microphone doesn't work in front of 500 people. And it's happened to me so many times that I know what I'm going to do. I'm like, listen, you can't talk when there's no microphone. Nobody would ever do that to an auctioneer who's already up here. Nobody wants me here. And now I don't have a microphone. You guys cannot talk. Come on, guys. We can do better than this. Let's link arms and get through this together. So you find your way of doing it. And then you're never scared of something that goes wrong. And it happened during COVID too. I mean, I'm sure you saw the virtual fundraising that was going on during COVID was really the biggest learning for me on top of so many years of learning. And the one thing I learned was that nothing was ever going to go right. And that had to be messaged immediately. It was almost the first thing I said when I got on camera in my living room in half pajamas and a cocktail dress. Like, <laughs> you know, I would say to the audience, I'm like, there's a strong chance you're going to see one of my kids during this auction. Like, there's nothing I can do. I live in an apartment in New York. Something will likely go wrong and we're going to recover because we're all here together and we're going to make it fun. So let's go. You know, and I think coming in with that, like, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm not afraid of things going wrong and neither are you. Let's get involved. And people were okay with that. Yeah. You know, in working with so many nonprofits and being inside the sector for so long, I'm obviously very familiar with the scarcity mindset that can often take over how nonprofits are thinking or making decisions around certain things that they're doing. And the auction is such a high stakes moment that I'm sure during COVID in particular, people were entering with a lot of nerves. And so I'm curious how anything you've noticed with the clients that you've worked with or anything you've done to allow them to sort of walk into this uncertainty or this experience that is not going to go perfectly and trust the process when they do feel a lot of fear. Yeah. I think it's being honest with them. And also in my case, and I can only speak from my story, but I don't have that fear. Like I didn't have that fear going on camera. And I would say to people beforehand, listen, if something goes wrong, we will recover it full time, like real time. There's nothing else we can do here. So I remember showing up, I mean, this will just give you a small indication of what I was dealing with when I was taking these auctions virtually. I remember showing up for an auction and I got there three hours before it was being shot at a sound stage. This was probably early 2021 and everyone's in masks and they said to me, okay, you know, here's the camera. We run through everything. And one of the sound guys came over. He's like, by the way, do you know that there's a 20 second delay between when you start talking and when the audience can see you? So think about that. So I say something and then 20 seconds later, everyone else sees it. So there's actually no way for me to take bids real time. And there were programs that could do it. This was just not one of them. And I had asked the question and I guess the event coordinator didn't quite understand what I was asking. And so I think we had about 30 minutes until I went on and I went back to her and I said, okay, we need to have a a conversation. This cannot be a live auction. We're going to have to completely redo this right now and reset it so that these things are set up on your back-end website and people can sell and people can buy them and they can bid real time like that. But this interface doesn't work. There's a 20 second delay. And she was just like, I was like, it'll be fine. I'll walk you through it. And she was like, okay. And we raised the money. And the point was not like, this is so great. I'm so great. It was just that 
we were on board at that point, realizing that there were things that were out of our control and there was nothing we could do, but I had built up the trust with her and had the confidence in myself to believe that this was the right way to handle this because I knew that the alternative was not going to be good. And I think that that also goes back to confidence in you and what you're doing. And as a fundraiser, you have to be confident because you have to believe in the people that you've hired who are experts at what they do. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I know something you're passionate about is diversifying auctioneers and increasing representation. Can you, and I know that part of your experience, as you shared, was breaking a lot of barriers there. So can you talk to us a little bit about why that is so important as we think about auctioneering as really a key element of how a lot of organizations raise a huge amount of their funds for a year? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I was at Christie's for over two decades and I taught 13 classes of charity auctioneers. And so as I was getting to this part of my career where people were coming to me to ask for auctioneers, especially in the last couple of years before COVID, I mean, excuse me, the years post COVID, a lot of the requests that I were getting were for people who didn't look like me or the other auctioneers who were working. And it was something that I was noticing more and more. And I remember once there's an organization that I work with, the most incredible organization, but every single person they serve is black. And they said to me, do you have an auctioneer who you work with who is black? And I said, I don't. I actually don't know a black auctioneer. That's the truth. And at that moment, as I was starting the agency, it was something that was so important to me because that's how I felt as a woman. Like if you looked on the auction house rostrums and big evening sales until 2020, there were no women taking the big evening sales. And now it's 50-50. So change can be made and it can be made quickly. And when you start something from scratch, which is what this agency is, my goal is to have people who look like the people who are benefiting from the services on stage so that in most of these cases, you have two or three tables of the clients who are being represented that night. They're there as client speakers. What if they see someone who looks like them up there? You know, when I started taking charity auctions and started teaching the charity auctions, the classes are women. There are lots of women who are charity auctioneers now because they look up on stage and they think, oh, I could do that. I'm not scared of that. I, that looks like something I could do. And so that's something that's very important to me as I build out and fill out the agency. I love that. And can we talk about for folks who are like, okay, we have nowhere to even start in thinking about hiring an auctioneer. Like what should we consider? How do we make sure we are finding the right cultural personality fit? Like I remember when I had hired auctioneers for organizations I ran previously, you know, I just Googled and interviewed a few people and was like, I like this person the best, but had no real better way of sort of evaluating or finding someone that I thought was like the right fit for that audience and why. Will you talk to us a little bit about that? That's honestly the reason I started the agency. So it was that exact question that I was getting all the time. And as you can imagine, post-COVID, a lot of people left New York and moved to other cities. And so I would go and take a fundraising gala. I'll give the example of Austin, Texas. I really had never taken an auction in Austin, Texas. And we had friends who moved down there. And so I think there are a lot of cattle auctioneers who take auctions down there and they saw one and they were like, you should call Lydia and have her come down. It's, it's a different style, but people might like it. And so I went down for my first fundraising gala. And I think it was such a fresh and different approach to what everyone was used to. I started getting calls that day. 
And that kind of happens now anytime I go into a market that doesn't have a really strong pool of charity auctioneers. So, you know, they have a weatherman who takes the auctions or they have a very specific person who's done it for 25 years in a certain market. And having trained 13 classes of auctioneers, I know what a really strong charity auctioneer should look like. And they don't all look like me. That's not the point. But there's something about them that is great on stage and that they hold an audience's attention and they know what they're doing and they're trained. And so that is really the reason I started the auctioneering agency. So that if you want an auctioneer for your nonprofit, you can call me. I can tell you who will be good based on where it's located, the size, the amount of auctions the person needs to have under their belt to be able to manage a room of that size. And then, as you said, the cultural fit as well. And I think all of those things are really important and it makes it easier for the nonprofit that is out there being like, I don't even know where to start. Like, I'm going to Google this. Maybe we should get somebody who's a volunteer. You know, there's so many questions and you don't need to ask them because I already have the answers for you and I can help you find the person who's good for you. So just think of me as a time saver. Okay, great. Yes. I wish I had had you (laughs) when I was doing that. You touched on something that I just want to explore a little bit, which is like, I do think that probably a lot of people think hiring a professional auctioneer is like a nice to have. And they're like, oh, our board chair can do it. Or, oh, like this person's charismatic, so they can do it. But what is sort of at stake and what are some things you've seen happen when folks have like thrown in random people to be their auctioneer? Honestly, my best case scenario is walking into an auction when they've had someone who's not a trained auctioneer. When someone's like, we've had someone's uncle do it. I'm like, we're about to make 2x what you made last year. I promise you that. That is literally my best case scenario. And it's because just like any other job, it's a job. A charity auctioneer has been trained. They are represented by my agency. They have many, many, in many cases, they'll have 20, 30, 40. Some of them have hundreds of auctions under their belt. Like they walk onto a stage and they know exactly what they're doing. And I've definitely seen and heard, I actually hear probably more than I should because my friends go to galas a lot in New York. And then I get texts all night, every night. Where are you? Why aren't you here? You won't even believe that what is happening right now. And it'll be like, you know, somebody's uncle got up there, but he also probably didn't think about the fact that drinking is not a great thing to do. And he started yelling at somebody in the audience. And people always think it's funny when people can be called out. But the interesting thing is people actually don't like to be called out by name in large audiences of people. It makes them very uncomfortable. And you can see it in their face. If you're like, Steve, I know how much you made last year. Steve's like, okay, what's the point? Like, I also just gave $2 million to the capital campaign. Like, that's not your job as the auctioneer. It's not to make fun of people. Your job as the auctioneer is to make that audience feel great about every dollar they give at any level. They give a million dollars, amazing wild applause. If they give a hundred, amazing wild applause. And those sensitivities and that understanding of how to work a room comes with experience like anything else. So I say to people more often than not, if you have a trained auctioneer on the stage a year after you have someone who has never taken an auction, you're looking at easily a 30% upgrade. So, and if they're a really good auctioneer, probably closer to 50%. Hmm. I remember when I was reading your book, thinking about this too, but a lot of how I teach, so my signature program is called the Power Partners Formula. And a lot of what I teach in fundraising is like, how do you build real relationships with all different types of funders, individuals, corporate funders, foundation funders, and really move away from a lot of the transactional fundraising practices that we've been taught over the years. And I was a frontline fundraiser for 13 years 
hated fundraising. And what really changed my experience as a fundraiser was getting executive coach certified, trained in habit and behavior design and design thinking and understanding and exploring my own discomfort and beliefs about money and issues of self-worth and growing my confidence, all of those things. That's what really fundamentally changed my not just how much I fundraised, but how much I enjoyed fundraising. And I think one of the things that really underpins how I teach fundraising is about designing experiences for you and the donor. And the money I talk about, like power partners being an alignment first methodology, but really what's underneath there is like, what does connection feel like? What does that experience feel like to be in relationship together? The money is the next part. But like when we have a money first ideology, we end up creating all these cringy moments and doing all of these things that make us not want to go back to those donors later because we're like, well, I really like threw it all out at the campaign at the end of last year. Now, how do I ask for money again? And reading your book and hearing about the experience that you would create in the room, like it's true, like an auction can be awkward, just like what you said, like everyone's a hard audience. And so, but what you really focus on is the experience in the room. And by focusing on that experience, that's what ultimately also raises the most money. Yes. And, you know, I always say one of the fundamental mistakes that you make as an auctioneer is if you go in thinking about only your bidders, because I go to rooms, there are a thousand people in a room. And out of that thousand people, best case scenario on the live auction lots, you have 10 people bidding. And a lot of the people can't even see them because the room's so big. So what keeps them paying attention? You make it fun. You make it about the audience. You make it all about the audience and not so much about the lot and not so much about anything except what is happening in that room right then. And people get drawn into this show. You know, I'm like informing them about what's taking place. Oh, did you see this gentleman just grab the paddle from the woman across the table who I'm assuming is his wife, but I will make no assumptions at this auction tonight, you know, and everyone's like, wait, what's going on? You know, this is so funny. And I realized when I used to take auctions like art auctions, where I would just say the increments, that's fine if you're at an art auction, because people at art auctions want to buy what you're selling. I'm selling stuff that most of the people don't even really want. They're just want to give money to the organization, right? So the more fun they're having, especially at the highest level of these auctions, there really is no limit to how much someone could spend. So the more fun they're having, the more audience support they're getting, the more money they're giving. And at the end, when they win, it's like a table celebration. It's not just one person winning. It's like table number 10 has come out yet again with an incredible lot and table 10 is getting cheered by everyone. And then you do the paddle raise and that's the moment for everyone to feel that. Like table 10 felt amazing. Let's all feel amazing. We're going to go down to $100 and everyone here is going to get that applause and support. I just like created an auction as part of your show. So. I love it. I was like, I can hear it. I'm in. My paddle is up. I want to be at table 10. <laughs> here. $100 from you. Thank you so much, Mallory. Okay, I'm You're in. I'm in. Whatever it is. <laughs> I love that walkthrough because it's so interesting. It's like there's so often where fundraising gets related to sales, right? And then we try to parse that apart and think about, 
the difference between sales and fundraising, which there's so many differences, but you just highlighted like one of the key fundamental pieces in terms of that comparison to an art auction. Like the focus is different. You know, the focus is not like, am I going to get that thing? It's like, what is the experience and relationship that I'm having in this moment? And that inspires my desire to participate. And that's like a fundamentally different driver then I want that object. Yes. And I realized early on so much about auctioneering for me is about humor. I have a very quick sense of humor. Things come to me quickly, like almost too quickly. So I can't say them all. And that's why I would never drink at an auction ever as long as I live because the line is very thin there. So I have to be really careful about what's coming out of my mouth. But the part that's so fun is from stage, when people start laughing, they all stop talking. They're just waiting for the next joke. They're waiting for the next like nudge. And all of that creates this atmosphere of joy. And in a fundraising moment, especially when you're getting to those paddle raise dollars and you've left the big money on the table, you can still make a lot of money at those lower levels if you motivate a room correctly. And I say in the most powerful woman in the room is I talk about this paddle raise moment of trying to hit a goal, right? They'd given me a goal. We just knock it out of the park. And that happens with a room of people so often where I'll throw out a goal and then we're not even there. Like this happened to me this season where I remember we had $7,750 and I kept going. We were supposed to stop at a thousand, but I wanted to get to a hundred thousand dollars. I just set this goal and I wanted it. And so we made it to 92,250 because I had taken it all the way down to $250. And usually in New York, you stop at a thousand, but the audience was there. I mean, they were not talking, they were cheering. And I was like, if only there were a hero in this room, just one person who felt like tonight was the night to give $7,750 and the room would go crazy and we would all applaud and then it's just silence. And I can see from where I'm standing, three people (laughs) reaching for their paddles because everybody loves that moment. Like somebody's going to raise their hand at that moment if you just are comfortable with the silence. And you're comfortable letting the audience and that anticipation go. And other things I've seen happen is somebody just raise their hand and be like, I'll give 2000. I'm like, and we're back in the game. I need 5,000, you know, 750 to go. Like, and then you just work the angles and people will throw in those, that money. And then you end up getting there and people love it. They love that feeling because it's a room coming together to raise money for a really great cause. And there's just no feeling like it. It's really it's something to see. And again, like this is why you go back to a charity auctioneer because you know how to do that and you know how to make a room rise to the occasion. Yeah. It's so interesting, all these limiting beliefs we have around fundraising and how much I think fear and discomfort surrounds the auction moment and the paddle pledge moment on the nonprofit side. And so I think yeah. the storytelling that you're doing right now is so important because for nonprofits to remember what this experience can feel like for their people in the room. Like I think when people are planning their events, they're like, and then we'll do that cringy part. It's like, we're going to have all these feel good moments. We're going to have like the beneficiaries speak and our ED speak and the board chair speak, and this is going to be all the good stuff. Then we'll slot in this other thing. And so I think really like thinking about the auction and the paddle pledge being the crescendo moment, not the thing that needs to get like put in right behind the crescendo moment. So you get the downswing effect, but that it really is this like incredible opportunity of people coming together, I think is just such an important reminder. 
You know, I've said to so many people, you know, I ran events at Christie's for 10 years. I ran partnerships for 12 after that. I ran the charity auctioneering program for 13 years. And we would get all of the inbound requests for auctioneers. And I would, on both sides, from the event planning side and the auctioneering side, I would watch people 18 months before an event, picking out their invitations. Did we get the script right? What is our theme? What are our tablecloths? Like every single minute detail planned. And then you would get a call about the auctioneer three weeks before. Do you guys have someone you can send over to take the auction? And I saw that for 13 years. And I was just like, the only person who matters that night is the person who can make your money. Everything else is a sunk cost. Your flowers, beautiful. They're gone. Your venue, great. The door closes the minute you're done. What is the only way you make money plus you get the right person on stage? And again, that is why I started this agency because I had gotten that call so many times, so close to the event. And I was like, guys, I book out a year in advance now, like a solid year. The organizations that I work with call me before they finish their venue contracts and are like, can you do this date? And it's great because we all know going in what is expected when I get on stage, we are going to raise money. That is the only reason I'm there. And I've been with some organizations for 15 years at this point. And it's the greatest joy of my life. There's nothing I love more than getting off that stage and knowing that there's not a dollar left in the room. (laughs) I love that. And that like the movement of money can feel so good. You know, I think that's another thing we forget in this sector sometimes, like mixed with the scarcity mindset and the desperation and that one angry email we got from a donor one time, like fundraisers hold so much kind of guilt around fundraising, I think a lot of the time. And and then we feel like, or I felt like for years, like fundraising was like trying to figure out how to ask someone in exactly the right way that maybe they do you this favor. And, you know, and I think when we hear stories like this and we hear about experiences with, like this, we're like, this is what like good money movement feels like. And this is like, yeah. people love giving like they in do. People want to help. And this is by the way, and I say this all the time, is such a uniquely American thing. I've taken auctions all over the world. This desire to give and to give back doesn't exist in the same way that it does in the US. And I just think it's such a magical thing. And if it's celebrated and it's exciting and it's fun and it's done correctly, people should walk out of that room, whether they gave It's usually the last thing I say after the paddle raise, because there's always some sort of text moment or paddle raise pledge card on the table. But like, I don't care if you give $5 tonight. I would like it if you gave $5 million tonight. But whatever you can give, every dollar is equal, because it means something different to every single person in that room that night. And you know, I remember taking an auction for Project Renewal, which is this amazing organization in the city, which helps people who are getting back on their feet after years of homelessness. And there was a video about a gentleman who had received their services. He had been homeless. He had lived there. He was back on his feet. He had an apartment of his own. And at the very end of the auction, I said, give whatever you can. And I'll cry when I say this. He stood up behind me and I turned around. I didn't realize it was him. And he was holding a hundred dollar bill to give back to the organization. (laughs) And I'm about to cry now. I started sobbing. Like I could not stop crying on stage and because that's what it's about. Yeah. Ultimately these dollars that you're giving are helping people and truly changing their lives. Like these fundraising galas, I take auctions for pediatric cancer where children survive because of the trials we raise money for in a paddle race. Think about how wild that is. You raise your hand and a child lived. Like that's what this money does. And that like seeing through that prism, you can never forget how important these things are and how life-changing they are to people. 
Hmm. Okay, I could ask you a million more questions, but I want to be sensitive to time. Is there any question I haven't asked you that I should have been asking you about all of this? I don't have the answer for this, but I do always love the question, where is the fundraising world going <laughs> post-COVID? And I will only say this, in 2019, I think I was on stage every single, it felt like I was on stage 365 nights in a row. And I remember saying to my husband at the time, like, there just has to be a better way to do this. There's a gala every night in New York. It's just, there has to be a different way. And then during COVID, we did the hybrid and the virtual. And I said to my husband afterwards, I was like, actually, there is no other way. This is really the only way. You need people packed in a room. They need to be having fun. They need a glass of wine or a, you know, a themed cocktail. They need to be with their friends. They need to be there caring about something so deeply that they're willing to give irrationally. And that's how it works. So that's a question you didn't need to ask, but I do always think it's funny. Yeah, I think the experiences that you've described in this conversation, they are in-person experiences. Yes. Like, you know, they require community experience and like like that pulse. I don't know how to explain it. Somebody was asking me about public speaking recently and I said, I don't know how to explain it, but I look for the pulse. Like I know I'm in my flow when I've like kind of ramped up in my talk when I can feel the room vibrating together. I don't know how to describe it, but it sounds so similar to what you're talking about. And that feeling is such an in-person experience. Yeah. Someone once said to me before I got on stage, he said, we were talking about like, what was my job, which as you can imagine is, is always like a good cocktail party conversation. Oh, wait, what do you do? I'm like, well, that's so interesting because I'm going to see you from stage and probably take money from you tonight. So I'm glad that we met. But it is funny because it is such, like, as I was getting on stage, he said to me, so you're about to bring the energy you want from the room, huh? And I was like, that's the best description I've ever heard. Like, I can't go on that stage unless I come out full throttle at 10 o'clock at night so that people know exactly what's about to happen. I have to wake them back up and make them engage. But that's what you're talking about. It's that pulse of like, we're in sync. This audience is here for this. We are along on the same ride and we're going the same direction. I love that. Okay. Where can people go to learn more about you and the agency and get in touch if they're interested in getting some help finding their next auctioneer? So everything's on my website, lydiafinette.com. I have a holding page for the agency. We're going to be sending out more information as we get into the tryout portion of this and additional representation for auctioneers who I'm looking at right now. And then I'm busy on Instagram all the time <laughs> at Lydia Finette. So follow along. And as I said earlier, I have a podcast called Claim Your Confidence and the most powerful woman in the room is you and Claim Your Confidence's book. So pick those up. <laughs> Amazing. And I'll put links to all of those below. Thank you so much for this conversation today and for sharing all of your wisdom with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the opportunity, Mallory. Okay. There is so much inside this episode that I love, but here are my favorite takeaways. Number one, Embracing challenges and obstacles rather than succumbing to them is a critical aspect of Lydia's approach to auctioneering. Number two, exuding confidence and wielding authority are crucial in the realm of auctioneering and fundraising. Number three, Lydia champions this by harnessing self-assuredness, not just on stage, but also in her interactions with clients and audiences. This embodiment of confidence breeds trust within the fundraiser-client relationship, which then bolsters the overall success of the fundraising initiative. Number four, a fear of failure can cripple fundraising efforts. 
However, I love that Lydia encourages embracing failure, viewing it as a guide for learning and self-improvement. And lastly, by adopting this mindset of embracing failure, nonprofit fundraisers can actually bounce back from setbacks more quickly, continually refine their strategies, and ultimately enhance their fundraising performance. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Lydia and our amazing sponsors, Constant Contact. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.